that jarring cacophony tells you that once again we're into that realm that's known as the power of three where Doctor Who fans get together to discuss digest discourse disagree and do other things starting with the letter D dick about as we <laughs> as we talk about Doctor Who and all its forms whether books comics novellas audios on the telly toys whatever we like to talk about it and uh, I'm Kenny Smith and I'm with my mate of many years I'm David Steele. Yes, hello. <coughs> Welcome back. Thank you for. I'm got him coffee already. Listeners, I do apologise. Hang on. <coughs> yes, Kenny has. Kenny has let me out of the cellar once again. Yes, that's and the Tardis cellar, which I keep you in and tied, I lay you out every few weeks. Tied me to a chair with a prompt sheet attached to the stand in front of me, so that I know what to talk about today. Yep. Um, I decided, in yeah. the words of Joe Grant, to seize you and fling you into a dungeon, as she says in the Time Master. The time Master, the Time Monster. The Time Master. There's a Freudian slip for you, mm. listeners. Or a story yes. title, if you want to write one. I, uh, I quite I quite like the Time Monster, must be said, for many reasons. But equally, another reason I think it's a little bit of old nonsense, but not to worry. That's interesting you mentioned, Joe Grant. Aha! Uh-huh. Very good. Very nice segue there, Dave, because today we're going to have a quick chat about Josephine and the Argonauts, because that book drops today. It's out on the 24th of August as this episode goes live. And we've got a chat with Paul Mars, who wrote it. And we're going to have a wee chat with him very shortly. But Dave, we're going to have a quick look over these. Um, this is part of the Doctor Who Penguin Classics range, which is, to use that term that the they used to love in the X Factor. It's a bit of a mashup, isn't it? Where the Puffin Classics brings together BBC books and Doctor Who stories and public domain literature. Yes, it seems to be um, a spin-off or, or a, a continuation of the sort of Abraham Lincoln vampire hunter or Pride and Prejudice and Zombies sort of stuff which started a while ago. I'm going to be mildly critical for a second with not no, nothing negative about these books. It's... It's, it's such a long time since we've had a regular new Doctor Who fiction sort of schedule. It's nice that we've got these because, you know, there's there's so little else happening. It's a shame. I mean, long gone are the days when, you know, you'd get three or four little dinky hardbacks every few months to keep you going while the series was off the air. And it's, um, you know, the number of books that the 12th and 13th Doctors got in comparison to their predecessors is, was tiny. It's a shame. But it's good that, um, it's good getting these alongside the new, the new novelizations because without wanting to be detrimental, it's better than nothing, isn't it? Exactly. And the fact is, these books so far, I mean, I've got two of them here, Dave, just to confirm. I've got my copy of The Legends of Camelot by Jacqueline Rayner <laughs> and The Return of Robin Hood by Paul Mars. Um, so, and can you those of our YouTube viewers? Yep, you can see them on YouTube. There we go, one in each hand. And I've really enjoyed them. There's, I've, I think there's, there's something quite entertaining. The first one, The Legends of Camelot by Jack, uh, is the Tenth Doctor and Donna um, back in the days of King Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table. And um, it, while investigating a strange energy in Carberry, there we go, nicely linked to Battlefield there. Um, 
but that's ah. it's, it's a pretty loose link and it goes from there then it's really entertaining um return of robin hood by paul mars i love the fact it's in green as well so that link in green you can't really see it in there yes and um, but it's there we go for yeah. take it back far enough and um yeah great book from paul with the doctor and sarah uh meeting robin hood again it's and it all ties in perfectly with the tv episode robot of sherwood with an older robin who's sort of like is this the doctor is this the same one um it's really good fun there's witches and it's just it's a really really entertaining read i see there's there's probably you know there's room i suppose for quite a few of these sort of things like maybe associating some of the doctors with other sort of fictional sort of things that they've done like you know it's a long time since we've had a doctor who and sherlock holmes story for example um, so, you know, they could do one with maybe the fourth Doctor meeting Sherlock Holmes and you could have an image of Tom from How Do the Baskervilles on the cover, maybe. Very or good. maybe even some Treasure Island because Tom played Long John Silver at one point, didn't he? He did. Um, they could do a Doctor Who Dickens mashup with any number of them, obviously maybe using Christopher Eccleston because he's been playing Fagin recently. Of course. Um, Very good thinking. I like that. And it's actually quite interesting that, that Josephine and the Argonauts is out because I, it's, you know, obviously we all know the famous Ray Harryhausen movie. Yeah, that, love it. Years ago, I had the joy of seeing the Golden Voyage of Sinbad at the, at the cinema and getting to meet Caroline Monroe for the first time afterwards and frankly, I haven't stopped smiling since. So I'm all very topical as far as all that goes. No, it's it's an interesting sort of genre. I haven't read much of it, to be honest. I remember thinking that the, the movie of Pride and Prejudice versus Zombies wasn't as good as it could be and, you know, Worth seeing for Matt Smith alone, to be honest. Absolutely, best um, thing. Well, I mean, what was it? Was it about these sort of books that, that you really like, then, Kenny? I mean, when I was growing up, I mean, things like Robin Hood, The Knights of the Round Table. These were things that my dad used to read. The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, and my dad always read these books, and I was given his own copies of them that he'd had when he was a wee boy. So right. I sort of you know, grew up reading them as well, you know, and obviously the the Greek myths as well. Just things that you know from you know that sort of stuff, the, the classic literature, um, even things, you know, like The Sword and the Stone, I've still got my dad's copy of that somewhere from um, when he was you know, very young and all these wonderful books. And it's, there's just something that, I don't know, appeals to my my younger self, sort of bringing together two of my favourite things. Yeah. And I mean, it's, uh, without one sound too pretentious, I suppose, you know, you and I are of the age when reading Doctor Who books was probably the, the most important part of being, and the biggest part of being a Doctor Who fan, because, we certainly couldn't stick on a, a DVD box set or watch any story that, that existed at the drop of a hat. You know, we we just had the books, and I think reading. And we've talked about this sort of stuff in the podcast before. The the books were the biggest part of. I'm repeating myself. I apologise. The books were the biggest part. That was how you you got your fix, and and it's um and it's an interesting sort of thing. I I imagine that I can imagine myself, age nine or ten, being delighted at a sort of. Third Doctor and Joe meeting Jason the Argonauts or a Fourth Doctor Robin Hood sort of novel. I hope kids read them nowadays. I'm not sure if they do, but I can imagine it'd be quite enjoyable for similar geeky little boys that we were. Exactly. I think there's there's that appeal that if you enjoy reading and you enjoy the classics, it's fun. That's the the bottom line thing. Just how are they going to do it? Because um, I was thinking for I read The Return of Robin Hood, and you think, how on earth will they make that work with the Fourth Doctor meeting an older Robin? And obviously, we've we know that the twelfth Doctor met Robin. So yeah, there's a there's a nice wee um, yeah. It's, it's very well explained away. There's and of course, and Harry's in it as well. I should point out this fourth Doctor Sarah and Harry. I realised never said Harry's name earlier, and it's just wonderful because when I'm reading this, 
I'm absolutely picturing the adventures of Robin Hood. So I've got Basil Rathbone uh, in there. It's just, you know, just that sort of, you know, that cast, that's the ones who, from the classic film who are, that's who I picture just because that's, I grew up watching that film over and over again. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So as far as outside of this, what's your your favourite other Paul Mars Doctor Who stuff? Oh my God, I just love Paul Mars' stuff. It's... It's just larger than life, and it's it's just one of the most distinctive voices. I mean, you could give me give me one page of a book, and I could tell you if it was a Paul Mars book straight away. <laughs> it's just yeah. the, the prose is beautiful. It's 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 just got like the characters are so larger than life and just different and distinctive, and he's just got such a clear authorial voice. And I think that's yeah, that's what it's I really very, like. There's a lurid quality to some of his stuff. My favourite stuff of his is the, the first wave of Tom Baker, Richard Franklin audios that he did, you know, Nest Cottage, whatever it was, the BBC books in the 2000s, because it was such a big deal that Tom was sort of essentially playing the Doctor in audio again. They were heavily narrated, more than dramatised, but it was um, it's quite a big deal because he hadn't gone to Big Finish yet at that point. And I remember there's a scene in the, the first one when... Um, Richard Franklin has a line about how Captain Yates had met this version of the Doctor at a unit Christmas party or something. And I, I remember being slightly sceptical of it beforehand and sort of thinking, what, is that the best he could, it's not the best they could do it, but it worked really, really well. And um, and actually, I remember thinking, what a good team the fourth Doctor and an older Captain Yates actually made. Um, it was really, really, really enjoyable. And there's a, there's a slightly macabre quality to them. Very sort of, I don't, I don't want to say Roald Dahl, but there's a he's Paul's not afraid of kind of um pushing the envelope a little bit and giving you a very satisfying and lurid and not scary's not the word. I'm not doing too well here, I'm a listener. But he's very you're right when he says that he has a unique voice because he's he's not afraid of kind of just pushing it a little bit without going too far. That's fair. Yeah. I mean I think I think yeah, that rolled out quality. I think there's the stuff like the stuff of nightmares, which is yeah. one of those nest cottage stories. That one is some wonderfully dark stuff, and it's it's almost like like really black comedy, and really? wrap, wrapped up in um, you know larger than life characters. But there's yeah, I think it's a it's a very distinctive voice, and I think that's what I love. Oh, yeah. it's, all, it's there in all his eight Doctor novels as well, which have been featuring in pieces of eight and. It's there in the likes of um, Verdigris as well, which completely destroys continuity and is wonderfully funny. And of course, crucially, it never feels that it's not Doctor Who. I think it's important to say, you know, it doesn't. Some sometimes you can read stuff by other authors, and it feels like you know it's just a, a story they had and they've crowbarred Doctor Who stuff into it. But I'd love to see. I'd love Paul Master written for the TV show. I think um, he'd be a great showrunner in a way that it would be kind of calling back to the proper scary ethos of, of Doctor Who. Um, without, but without it seeming like it was a parody or any way ironic, because it his stories sort of remind me of like in the best possible way, like the images you would get on Doctor Who jigsaws or in Doctor Who annuals or yeah. really old Doctor Who clips. It doesn't really feel like the TV series, but at the same time, it it feels authentic. He, he captures the proper the proper essence of what's yeah. important. That phrase you love, Dave. Proper yeah. Doctor Who. Yeah. Yeah, as, yeah, absolutely. Certainly, and I'm going to be, you know, mildly critical here. Certainly more so than a lot of TV Doctor Who has done for a very long time. But that's that's all I'll say on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, follow Dave's tweets to find out more on this subject. 
and look back yes, yes, over the last decade. X, X as it is now, of course, and type at David Steele and then the phrase proper Doctor Who and you'll and you'll <laughs> you'll get get the gist of my my old man shouting at Cloud about Doctor Who. Exactly. Well, why don't we stop ranting and uh, and we don't want to make Paul's head explode too much with our praise of his work. <laughs> so why don't we hear from the author himself? I'm Paul Mars, and I'm the author of um, various things, but in this case, I'm the author of Josephine and the Argonauts. And what a brilliant title it is. Yeah, it's one of those ones that landed. Uh, I didn't have to think about it too hard. The Robin Hood one took some time. But other titles are, you know, the kind of punning ones usually just arrive, like, you know, years ago, The Horror of Glam Rock seemed inescapable and and was was spot on and could never be changed uh, and this one again because it's you know obviously based on Jason and the Argonauts and in my story Joe Grant gets to take center stage so it's a kind of playing with the idea of a kind of feminist revision of a uh, of the Greek fairy tales but mostly it was about what fun to put Joe right at the heart of a story and make the Doctor kind of almost secondary. He has to play second fiddle and of course because it's Pertwee's Doctor he gets slightly irked by this. Fondly irked. I think that's uh, that is, it's just, I can imagine it. It's just you can just imagine this, it's the indignation I think probably that would be the yeah, word. Indignation is a great word for him. He, yeah. he would sit he would stand and, and bridle slightly, but still enjoy the adventure because he's on this ship, the Argo, which contains all the greatest heroes from uh, antiquity. So, you know, they're all there, Theseus and Perseus and the whole lot, and he's there as well. So that's, you know, terribly flattering. So he's, you know, in his right place, but um, he's also bemused and amused to see Joe elevated in the way that she is in this story. Yeah. So how did the commission for this one come about? Were you given a brief or was it you allowed to go and sort of pitch some ideas? Um, let's see. The way it's worked both times in this series is that I pitched a whole range of ideas. And usually they're pairings of Doctor and Companion combinations with particular puffin classics that I like and would like to mess around with. Because this is a, a mashup series in which Doctor Who collides with classic books of the past and so I had a, a whole range I've still got a whole range in my head that I haven't done yet but you know working with editor Tom um, we came up with the one that uh, seems the best fit for the moment and um, and this time it was this idea of taking a whole load of the Greek myths and jumbling them up and and pitching the third doctor and, and Joe into the the heart of them something that I suppose it always been at the back of my mind because of moments like, you know, things like the Time Monster when they go back into ancient Greece. It was never long enough for me. You never had enough of that. You had a bit of mine at all, but not much. And I loved that pairing of characters going off to very exotic places. And so, yeah, this just seemed like a brilliant, a brilliant thing for me to do, to play with. I suppose, given that you've written for Katie Manning, in different guises over the years. I suppose this is something that having her voice, it will be in your head just so easily, just finding that. <laughs> yeah, her voice is always in my head. Yes. You know, we, I mean, she's, you know, she's played Iris for 
uh, 22 years now, 23 years, and she's been a good friend almost from the start of working together. And she, you know, the character's always there, or you know, the character of Joe's always there, and Iris, and I've written them them both a lot over the years. It's not hard to summon those voices up again for them to, for me to just tune in with what they're up to now really in my head that's how it feels but that's how it feels for for many of the characters within this world i mean one of the i've probably banged on about this before but one of the kind of many many expertises required of um people who write doctor who tie-in stuff is that you have this immense working knowledge of all the characters and where they're up to at various points and to be able to drop into those moments and write new stories that captures the, you know, them and their voices exactly and um, uh, that's a a real skill and actually not many people can can do it I think I it's one of the things that I can one of the few things one of the things I can do and enjoy doing and yeah the third doctor and, and Joe and then the brigadier being there and Benton and of course our villain Oh, these are voices that are kind of, you know, chuntering away in the back of my head the whole time. It must be a real thrill for you, being able to do these sort of, with your own inimitable style, but it's also just, just bringing everything together and, and having fun with it, because I think that's something that may, maybe is quite a lot of Doctor Who fiction over the years became quite serious for a while, and it's always quite nice to be able to have that, you know, get that mix of Doctor Who's unique blend of comedy, drama, and just everything else, that indefinable quality. Yeah, I'd call it uh, the indefinable quality I would define as hectic whimsy. And that's very important, I think. It's not so much that the books became serious. There's nothing wrong with things being serious. It's it's when they become earnest and when the attitudes of the people doing them become earnest or worse, cynical cynical combinations of tropes and characters flung together which i think we see you know we we see right across the board really in in um in all kinds of sci-fi fantasy media these days and it's very you know it needs it needs uh, combating with things that are done well and i think they've got to come from the heart and you're right you've got to find joy in in doing them and for me because these are books that i i would like people to be reading and you know things like the summer holidays They've got to have that feel. I set about them in the same spirit. So these two books, Robin Hood and Argonauts, in both cases, I, I wrote in the autumn, almost like new school term, you know, with exercise book and, and new pencils and things. Not literally in this case. It was <laughs> it was on the laptop, although I have in the past written books in, you know, pencil in exercise books. When I did the, uh, the Mars trilogy, my own series... But 10 years ago, more than 10 years ago, uh, that that was written in pencil in the autumn. Just to capture that feeling of, you know, new books, a new term, and and the joy that you felt about, that I felt about new stories that I was reading and writing when I was about 12. I think that's, that's very important to me. Not that the stories are in any way childish or childlike, but the spirit that infuses them has to be, uh, has to come from that same place. And that's... Yeah. Very important. Even if I'm writing terribly serious fiction for adults, you know, or, or, or whatever, it still has to have some of that spirit of playfulness, adventure, and as I said, hectic whimsy about it. 
Yeah, it's that, that new term, that new energy. So sort of, here we go, something new is yeah. beginning. Let's go with it and see where it goes. I think that's... that's and there's lovely. so much jaded crap out there, you know, in, 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 in the world. And, you know, now, now they've even got AI to throw together jaded crap so that, so that jaded crapsters don't actually have to do anything. <laughs> yeah, so there's too much cynicism, I think, too much ersatz nonsense. So I think a lot of the work for me has to be about digging down into um, that question of what gives you joy, what brings you joy, and how do you put that on the page? Yeah, I think that's... And for me, it's ridiculous adventures to do with, you know, witches and monsters and, and flying ships and the Doctor in a velvet cape and Joe running after him and all that stuff. And going to knock on heaven's door, you know, the, the, the big moment for this, the big moment for um, Pertwee's Doctor. And I suppose the crux of the book is that, of course, you know, given all the gods in Olympus, the Pertwee Doctor would go banging on the door of heaven and ask to be admitted and march up to, to Zeus. Hands on hips. Yeah, and uh, that was always in my head. I mean, this story takes place at the end of his and Joe's time together. For me, it's right before the Green Death. It's she changes at the end. She learns to you know to step away from him in the Green Death. And I think, in a way, this story is pivotal. Um, and so I always wanted a moment where they go to uh, you know to see Zeus, and uh, yeah, a, a big kind of dramatic moment like that. But that was the that was the, the the heart of it and the start of it, I think. Yeah, well, that's a, a good wee tease, a throw forward to what we've got to expect. So let's go back twelve months to Robin Hood, and yeah. that was just such a joy because when I read that, I I think I must have read half the book in one sitting and then just did the second in another because it was just so alive and so much fun, and it just it had the sort of the, obviously there's the the robot of Sherwood's sort of the loose connection there but at the same time there's the adventures of Robin Hood film in there and just everything you would want it to be and it, it did... I, I, I read everything <laughs> As he, I, I knew of so many versions of Robin Hood and I went back to so many things that I kind of semi-remembered like Rosemary Sutcliffe and, and obviously Roger Lancelin Green and lots of, of kind of more recent versions as well as well as the kind of terribly old ones and, and the old cycles of stories. And so they all dwarf each other. There's so many of them. And then you put that alongside all the Doctor Who stuff. And there's lots of Doctor Who connections there as well because you had to go back to Richard of, of you know, Richard the Lionheart in, in the um, Crusades and use his stories, which are irresistible. You know, after, after we meet him in the Hartnell story, of course, he spends his time walking back across Europe in disguise to get back to to Britain, and that that seems irresistible for a kind of Doctor Who story. And so I interrupt him, and you know the Doctor brings him back to to the uh, the England of of Robin Hood and the fake King John. Yeah, I'm glad I'm glad to hear that you you read it quickly with the kind of energy that it that I think is in there, because I think it's the energy of again of of, of books that you read in the summertime of uh, you know the perfect summer holiday reading and that's what it should be because it's somewhere between a puffin book and a target doctor who book i think there's there's a, a misperception about this series that they're four kids <laughs> you know you get the the target books currently the new target books are getting lots and lots of publicity but the idea that those are somehow for grown-ups and the puffin books are for kids is 
is wrong. I always say it's the same as all Doctor Who stuff. It's for intelligent readers of 8 to 80, just as, you know, Terence Sticks might have said, or perhaps did say. And yeah, these things are as complicated as you want to as you want to perceive them as. But they're, they're rollicking adventures, but you know, on the other hand, they're palimpsests of, you know, crazy intertextuality too. Yeah, I was about to say, there's layers there and there's adult themes there, but they may not be incredibly obvious, but there's, everything's there, there's the the human emotion as well and that's the things yes, that really, really grabbed me really important with doctor who to to uh to hit those notes and when doctor who doesn't work it doesn't hit those notes you know you, the characters leave you cold or, or you don't they don't get those moments where they question everything or you know it's not just peril it has to be uh uh some kind of big emotional moment too yeah so so you know in in robin hood Sarah gets to be possessed again, which is, you know, fantastic. I love doing Sarah's character being a bit kind of more evil. I mean, she, she hit it, didn't she, at different points in the series. And it's wonderful in The Hand of Fear when she does that. But to have her possessed by this kind of witchy character is uh, is terrific. And, you know, Jo gets her moments too in, in, in the current book, while of becoming the hero of her own story. And those are big moments to step out from the Doctor's shadow and to um, to question, you know, the goddess that she, you know, the hero that she she meets, and and to have trust placed in her. You know, these are big emotional beats. Hopefully, yeah. There's something that did amuse me when I saw the title of the book, and I don't know what this says about me is that when the the, the Robin Hood book was announced, I automatically thought, fantastic, that's a tie-in with the Jota Star trading card, the cards of the, the top Trump type cards of the 70s. I thought Robin Hood was one of them. Sherlock Holmes was another. These characters the Doctor never met on screen. And yeah. that just had me thinking, ooh, there we go. That sort of period, it works. Thank you very much. <laughs> I, I love that kind of hypertextual, whatever it's called, that Umberto Eco talks about with, you know, characters from out of copyright books meeting each other in some kind of you know I've always been drawn to those kinds of stories one of the first books I remember buying that wasn't 126 pages long <laughs> was uh, a novel by Kay Van Ash called oh, is it The Shadows of Baker Street but it, Fu Manchu meets Sherlock Holmes and he's somebody who was a great expert in, you know in both cycles of stories and it was it was you know like all those Batman stories where he meets characters from other fictions or you know Superman meets Spider-Man it, those team-ups were, were the kind of the stuff of fever dreams for me as, as a kid and the idea that that can that can happen is still still exciting I kind of wish there was there was more of it with Doctor Who hopefully that there, there, there will be in the future yeah, and it must be such a joy for you, you know, after all these years, here you are, you're still writing stories with the Doctor and Sarah, or the Doctor and Joe, and it's just getting to put new adventures for your heroes of your childhood. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad that they're, they're, they're books, because books kind of stick around somehow, and you get a certain amount of interference, but not too much, <laughs> so that they're, they're a kind of a fringe activity that that's that's nice to be doing. You know, it's 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 joyful in lots of ways. But you know, I think as well, Doctor Who always appealed to readers, so that the people who were fans when I was growing up tended to be um, uh, loners, readers, uh, misfits, 
in times when Doctor Who's kind of very popular, it's not those people, it's much more mainstream, and that can be galling to, to misfits such as I. You feel kind of like, you, you, uh, you know, it's like everybody suddenly, I've said it before, everybody suddenly loving David Bowie after he died. So you're the thing that was kind of special to you. It's, it becomes uh, everybody's property again. So it, it's nice to be writing something that's addressed to or for people who are willing to spend more time on it, who aren't just watching something on the telly on you know mainstream TV that's easy, that just kind of flashes past them, that's passive. You know, I think TV and film is a kind of passive activity, and and, and you know, people who these days especially in the days of streaming it's a kind of it's a voracious audience that soaks up everything and lots of it binging as they call it but it's lazy it's a lazy kind of binging which sounds terrible it kind of is and i think i've gone off it i loved streaming services i loved the kind of availability of everything but I, I i've got a bit cheesed off with it i think it always makes me laugh when people talk about binging on a series you, know, you can go to the next episode you can go to the next thing and you think you've never read have you you've just discovered what reading is <laughs> where you're allowed to read the next chapter and a chapter after that if you want and they call it binging as if it's some kind of unhealthy activity to the rest of us who spent time with books it's just simply known as as reading yeah. so i do think reading takes a bit more a bit more attention from people and so i'm glad to work in in that world where you reward that the thing that i particularly enjoy is the fact that people like you and i paul over the years and most fans i think have been with the show since the the classic era we've invested in it emotionally we've invested in it financially we've invested in it physically we've we have put our heart and soul into it and it's not just a case of find it on a button there we go scroll through play watch that's you done we've put a a lot more into it in our you know heart and soul because it means something Mm -hmm. to us because it's given us a lot and the fact that now you're doing what terence was doing back in the day and you're putting your heart and soul into these works and giving us giving us these amazing stories well, I, I mean, I think I'd hate to, you know, make it a dichotomy that in the old days we worked so much harder and now they just sit there. Because I think, you know, people do all sorts of amazing things of their own invention. I think whatever activities people are getting up to now, and now maybe it's shifted into things like making costumes or making videos or, you know, computer stuff, or, you know, m- maybe it's not narrative-based. I don't know. I've seen people do kind of astonishing things. But... I don't know. I th- I th- the availability of everything everywhere at the touch of a button is is kind of problematic, I think, in some ways. It, it debases things. It's like, you know, I, I, I worry about things like ebooks. You know, why the hell did we do that? Why did we turn the industry, the, the publishing industry, over into something where people can just download anything? Uh, you know, and you don't actually have to go looking for it. Why do we have online shopping where that's that, that ruins the things we loved like random book shopping in secondhand mm. shops um completely agree you know the, these are things that that make in the short term make things easier but in the end rob you of the joy of serendipity yeah to go back to a very joe grant word yes absolutely i mean thing is for me there's no greater pleasure than when it comes to reading than just having that physical copy in my hand and be able to pick it up put it down and just it doesn't need a battery it's just there and if I want to go and pick it off the shelf I don't need to worry about downloading it that convenient it's there on the shelf 
I've got a good example of this just from last night, actually. I <laughs> I picked up a um, Chris Colfer's book, um, uh, Land of Stories, Volume One. It's a six-part, six-volume series, actually about fairy tale and children's book characters all living in, in in a world together and jumbling up all these texts. And it's about twelve years ago that they first started coming out. And I picked up, I think, volumes three and four from a charity shop yesterday and of course came home and immediately bought all the rest off ebay because i couldn't bear not to have the whole lot yeah. and knew that i had book one went looking for book one and i'd bought it recently and i th i thought i have read this but i can't remember anything about it i look online to see if there's a review and i looked online to see if anybody blogged about it and here's a review and i'm reading it and i go this is me nine <laughs> years ago <laughs> So I'm reading this just at random. The first thing that came up was 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 my review, and I could remember very little. And I thought, God, I'm, you know, I'm losing it. And then realised when I kind of looked at my journal and stuff, I'd read it on ebook. The memory had faded because I hadn't read it as an actual book, and it's only through experience, reading experience, and years passing, that you actually start to realise what this stuff does to you. It's it's not real. It's transparent. It's it drips through your fingers if it's not actually a book. And I would have argued the opposite. I would have said in the past that stories are stories, books are books, whether they are audio or physical or whatever they are. And and, and it, the act of reading is what burns away the physical object. It's in your head forever. And it's not true. I think we, as human beings, we need to actually probably hold something that's palpable. And and that's my best example at the moment. Nine years ago, I read this book and I'd forgotten it, even though the Internet still remembered my review. I didn't. Um, and so I'm reading it again with equal joy. And and so that's that to me is. Is a kind of um, it's a moment when I've taught myself something about about the nature of reading. And it is a wonderful world. I just, it's, I mean, that's something I'm so proud of. My daughter loves reading. She absolutely, she's voracious. She'll read books. She'll read her manga comics. She'll read comics. She just loves to read. It doesn't matter what form. And she's like me. She needs to have a physical copy of something. And, she's, and it's, it's great to know that there's some hope for the younger generation yet. <laughs> Yeah, well, there's the physical copy stuff that can crowd out your house. And at the moment, I've foolishly turned back to kind of comics of the 70s that I read and I still <laughs> have kind of vivid memories of. But, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm rebuying copies of things that arrive and they still have, you know, the essence and the smell of 1976 in their pages because people have put them in plastic bags and never read them since. And I buy them, rip all the plastic bags off and, and you know, devour them. And and so they're you know filling a space in the house and it's it's ludicrous and I blame a particular comic shop in Cromford in Derbyshire that I went to on a little trip when we were away in May on a book shopping trip and uh, yeah <laughs> Ian who runs that has a Facebook page where he posts pictures of particular comics and so things like the Defenders and. Of Mighty World of Marvel, all of those 70s comics have started sneaking back into the house. And it's like being crazy. But brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. It is. It is. It's, it's like kind of trying to reconstitute something, I guess. Yeah. I think somehow if I can collect up the things that I've forgotten, that I've read and experienced, somehow I'll get the whole picture. 
one day. It's rather nice that you've got a book coming out in the 60th anniversary year as well. It's with a classic doctor, an all-time great companion, and you've got your own part in those anniversary celebrations. Yeah, I mean, I think all the you know all this stuff, all the kind of hullabaloo and commercial stuff, is always overblown, and you know there'll be um, by the end of it, be like, oh god, just you know enough. But it's nice to have your own part of it to contribute something to all the hullabaloo is is great, and I'm glad that it's something that I really want to do. It's something that nobody else could do in quite that way. That's the important thing for all of this: doing something that nobody else could contribute in the same way that you would, <laughs> for good or yeah. bad. Um, yeah, but unmistakably, your bit of it because, you know, as in any for anything, um, most people do work and they're not allowed to have that kind of attachment to it. They're not allowed to. Something mitigates against their being heavily invested in it. You know, work is just work. So I'm, I'm glad when, you know, you get paid absolute peanuts for doing these things, and it's a joke, and there's no royalties, and it's ridiculous, and you know, in some ways, you get absolutely exploited because of your desire to do this, your love of doing it. It's ridiculous. But there you are still doing it. Because it's Doctor Who and it's got that magical for us all. Yeah, yeah. And maybe it's ridiculous that I've done it for, you know, well, 25 years now. September is my 25th anniversary of doing Doctor Who stuff. And um, maybe I should, you know, grow up <laughs> and stop doing stuff for, for peanuts and love. Love and peanuts. There's the title of a book. <laughs> Oddly enough, it was Love and War that, that Cornell wrote when he was on the MA with, with me and popped me in as a, as a character. Of course, yeah. It was my first appearance in, in Doctor Who print. I think um, to mark your 25 years, we should all be getting our copies of the Doctor Who 25th anniversary album out and listening to Keith McCullough's classics from start to finish. I don't think so. No, maybe not. <laughs> I've gone too far now, haven't I? But yes, it's, <laughs> I've nearly broken Paul Mars with a Kef McCulloch reference. <laughs> oh dear. Anyway, Paul, it's been brilliant as always. Thank you so much. And uh, fingers crossed that lots and lots of sales will be going for Josephine and the Argonauts. Yes, I hope so. And there we go. Huge thanks to Paul. That was fascinating interview did not go the way I expected at all and really interesting <laughs> insight into the way that BBC books work and uh, yeah it's frustrating for Paul you can feel it coming across there food for thought I think in a lot of ways yeah she'll remain tactful even more at this point <laughs> yeah absolutely and we're going to be back next week Dave well you're not going to be here it's a chat about slip back as we conclude our look at the BBC radio stories that were released and broadcast. So, yeah, we're going to drop that one next week. Yes, I, I've got slipped back in cassette, and I think I listened to it at the time, and my main memory of it is um, squelching noises and the doctor shouting, Run, Perry! Run! And that's about all I can remember of it, so it's a good thing I'm not involved in that episode because it will be very short. <laughs> but you're not very short, you're very tall. Well, I'm tall, yeah, tall, taller, in more way, taller in small ways, yes. <laughs> anyway, you can follow the podcast at Power of Three Pod on the Twitters. I don't like to call it X. I noticed the BBC say X, formerly known as Twitter or previously known as Twitter, and um, it's just such a stupid name. Anyway, it's nonsense, but that's probably a chat for another time. It's just like you know, um, someone pointed out how funny it was elsewhere recently that um, Disney bought Star Wars and Lucasfilm and all that from George Lucas for eight billion. 
um, or something like that or whatever it was and then Ellen paid 44 billion for Twitter and it's just like wrecking it for everyone it's it's, it's been interesting to behold but yes I'm on Twitter as I say Dave Ad Steel you can also find my other podcast podcast underscore Earth 2 Kenny has been given his his lines for his next appearance which is probably about two months away at the moment so <laughs> psych yourself up for that <gasps> he's going to do an amazing this time the hell I am no, it'll be better than that. <laughs> John Wayne just entered the room and then turned around and didn't even say a I word. I love it. I love it. John, the flash in the style of John Wayne. Peter's going to flip. <laughs> the hell he is. Anyway, thanks again to Paul Mars. That was brilliant. Yes. Thanks for being so open with us. Great stuff. But before we go, Dave, I believe you may have one question for me. Yes, because we talked about Robin Hood, I'm hoping you were going to play out with Brian Adams, everything I do, I do for you. But um, what are we going to play out with, Ken? Well, Dave, I thought, given that we've been talking about Greek myths and pulsing how they've moved from the like the days of the gods to the days of like the heroes, I thought we could maybe play out with a fantastic song that I love. I thought we could play out with Heroes, We Could Be by Alesso featuring Tuvalu. Of course. What else could it be? Listeners, take care. All best. Bye-bye. We go hide away in daylight. We go undercover, wait up the sun. Got a secret side in plain sight. Where the streets are empty, that's where we run.